for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Okay, and we love God's word here at New Heights Church so much. We preach it verse by verse, line by line, precept upon precept, and we go through all the books of the Bible. God's word is powerful and has the ability to transform our lives. And so we love it. Like I said, we find ourselves this morning uh, in Acts chapter 9 and starting in verse 19. That's where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to continue to unpack this incredible book And if you're new to being a follower of Jesus, if this is something you're new to or you're new to our church, you need to understand that the center of the whole Bible is really a person and his name is Jesus Christ. And revolving around Jesus are are what I like to call boundaries or principles on how to live your life. So God, God knows the things we shouldn't do. And he knows the things that we should do, right? And a lot of wisdom, a lot of practical, very good advice, as well as historical people and their stories are in the Bible. And these stories of these people, they're some of the most amazing, fascinating, life-changing, earth-shattering, eternity-altering stories in the history of the world. And today, we're going to look at one of those stories about life transformation, we get to continue to look at Saul's life, or, or, or what most of you know him as, the Apostle Paul. Yep, that's right, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. And what we're going to do is examine this guy's testimony. And I use the word testimony, not, not just his story, but his testimony, because there's a difference between somebody's story and their testimony. 
okay? How many of you just love a good, a good biography? You love, you love a, a, a movie, a, a feel-good story about somebody's life, right? We love to hear about somebody who overcame adversity, someone who stood in the face of opposition, somebody who was able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps to experience a win. You know, they emerged triumphant over their circumstances. My favorite movies are the ones that are based on true events. Somebody's life story. I love it. You know, my favorite movie of all, Rudy. Well, I like Dances with Wolves. But other, then, number two is Rudy, right? I love Rudy. They tell Rudy he'll never play for Notre Dame. It's a true story. But he, he, he did, and the best part of that movie is at the end when he gets that tackle, right? At the end of the game, they start chanting, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And he goes in and he gets the tackle. He overcomes all of those obstacles, and he's a player for Notre Dame, if that's not enough evidence for you to be a Notre Dame fan, I don't know what is, okay? <laughs> it's God's team, man. Now, the difference, though, between somebody's story and a testimony is this, God. God. Because someone's story is about what they did and a testimony is about what God did. A good story is about how they overcame it's a story about how they became something amazing. But a testimony is how God overcame. And a testimony is about how God gets the glory. Someone's story is ultimately about their glory. Hey, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. But a testimony is look what God did. Look what God accomplished. So as Christians, we learn from the Bible, we're not really to seek to have our own story. We're not really to, to have a story that would make us out to be the hero. And I, I got to tell you, this can be tricky in Christianity sometimes because we want to honor those who have done amazing things for the kingdom. But more often than not, we, we tend to, what we'll end up doing is praising the man and giving the man all the glory and not God. Man becomes the victor. They're the ones who did these amazing things. And, and these, I'm telling you, they make incredible books. I'm so disappointed so many times when I go to the Christian bookstore and I'll, I, I want to pick up a book of how a church is doing something incredible. And the whole book's about the man, the pastor who did it, not about God. They make good stories. But ultimately, we're not to be the heroes. Man's not the hero. God's the hero. And so ultimately, we, we need to have a testimony. And in our testimony, it's better, it better be that God's the hero. God's the victor. God's the triumphant. God's the glory. He, he's the one who's glorious because he's glorious because he loves us, because he's gracious, because he's merciful, because he's compassionate, because he's good. And he's the hero and we're not. And he gets the glory and we don't. So today, as we look at Paul's testimony, not his story, his testimony, I want you to think about your life and how it can be a testimony. Because ultimately, a testimony encourages people in their own life. I mean, think about it. When I hear someone tell their story of God's power in their life, I get encouraged. I get encouraged by a testimony. I think, wow, God is good. He's amazing. If he can do that in this person's life, think about what he can do in my own life. Do you know, Revelations even says, in the face of adversity, God's people overcame them. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's powerful. Knowing and remembering the work of God in our life, it protects us against the lies and the deception of the devil. We have a testimony because we know what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have experienced from God. We can't be deceived by a lie. Somebody tells us there's no God. No, we know what we've experienced. 
I'll never forget when I was a little kid, I went to a public school. This was back probably in around 1992 or 1993. And there was this uh, kid in my class who his family had brought him to an Easter egg hunt. And, and he gave his life to Jesus at the Easter egg hunt. So this was back in the day too, just by the way, where people criticize Easter egg hunts. They shouldn't be a part of church events and I remember when my dad was one of the first ones to do an Easter egg. Now it's like every church does it, but when he did an Easter egg hunt, boy, they wanted to drag him out of the church and hang him up by a rope. That's another story, though. (laughs) That's another sermon. But here at this Easter egg hunt, I remember this kid in my class gave his heart to Jesus, and he was so excited, and he said something at the show and tell. He showed the T-shirt he won at the Easter egg hunt, and then he talked about his own testimony. And I'll never forget when he sat down, because the teacher, I grew up in Seattle, and even in 1992, the teacher said, well, that's great for you, but we all know God does not exist. And I'll never forget, my, he wasn't my friend, he just was in my class, but I'll, I'll never forget what he said back. He said, Miss Cannon, you can say what you want, but I know what I experienced. And you can't tell me God doesn't exist because I know what I experienced. He had a testimony. He experienced something. He had a story. All right? Now, i got to be honest that his testimony encouraged me. But a testimony doesn't just encourage believers. It evangelizes unbelievers too. So sometimes I think we fail to really understand the power of our testimony. Your testimony is powerful because it testifies not just that God is alive, not just that he's loving, not just that he's good, not just that he's powerful, not just that he's true, but the fact that he's manifested all of that in your own life. That's a testimony. When you share your testimony, you become a living epistle. You become a story of God's grace that not only encourages believers, but it evangelizes unbelievers. Your testimony makes Jesus real to people. You have a testimony. You have a reason to share your testimony. So the question I want us to consider today as we we look at this text is, what does it look like for a man or a woman who who is living out a testimony for God? What does that look like? What what does it look like? And I think some of what we see through the life of Saul today is going to help us understand a few characteristics of what it is to be a man or a woman living out their testimony for the world to see. So the first thing we'll look at, we're going to look at the latter part of verse 19, so 19b through 22, but we're going to see living out our testimony involves sharing the gospel. I know, it's real deep, isn't it? (laughs) Living out our testimony involves sharing the gospel. Look with me at the end of verse 19. It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. You know, he spent time with the disciples. Don't, don't just read over that and not think anything. You can't survive as a solo saint. All right? He spent time with the disciples. We need to prioritize our priorities. Being with God's people has to be a priority. Let me tell you something. I'm going to get real controversial here. I'm very grateful and thankful for our online presence because it reaches people that sometimes cannot come to church. But being with God's people needs to be a priority. You can't be with God's people watching it through a screen. So he spent time with his disciples. In fact, Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. you got to prioritize God's people. And guess what? Church isn't just Sunday. 
You can't just come on Sunday morning and say, I've done my part, I've been with God's people. No, the Christian life is community. It's doing life together. And sometimes we in the West don't do that very well. We'll give God a little, an hour and a half on Sunday. Now, now we even struggle with that, giving God that hour and a half because it's way easier to watch the service in my pajamas wearing my Cincinnati Bengals snuggie, you know. I don't even have to take off my slippers. Prioritize our priorities is what we need to do. All right, verse 20. And immediately, now if you you take notes, I want you to circle this word immediately. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus. There's another one. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, if he is the son of God, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief of priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So the first thing I want to point out is that living out your testimony is going to mean sharing your faith. Followers of Jesus share the gospel. And here are some of the things I noticed from from these verses we just read, at least some initial observations. Number one, Saul had been in Damascus for a very short period of time. His encounter at the beginning of, chapter, uh, of this chapter on the Damascus Road, it just happened days ago. It's just been a matter of days. Saul left Jerusalem. He left with warrants and commissions to take any people of the way that he could find, arrest them, and return them, possibly even kill them. He's wreaking havoc. He encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road at the beginning of the chapter, and in doing so, it completely and radically transforms him. Come on, somebody say amen talking a a radical transformation occurs. And now he's only been in Damascus for a few days, not too long. And what we notice is that he's beginning to immediately change his mission. He's no longer about let's arrest these people the way, let's find them and get rid of them. He's different now, just a few days here with the disciples and he immediately begins to take action. He immediately begins to share the gospel. In fact, I wanna focus in on the word a little bit more immediately. Because Saul couldn't wait to go to the synagogues in in Damascus and share the good news that he's just received. Why? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills you, it spills out. That's what is happening here. Paul has been full of the Holy Spirit. He's been radically transformed and changed. And he wants to go share this with as many people as he can. And Luke gives two statements here in in really what was at the heart of Saul's new worldview. And I I don't want you to miss this. Jesus... The hated, rejected, crucified criminal is the son of God and the long hope for Messiah. This is Paul's message here. In fact, verse 20, it says, and he immediately, he proclaimed Jesus. Where? In the synagogues. Saying he is the son of God. And verse 22, Paul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ which means Messiah, the anointed one, the fulfiller of all God's promises to Israel. I love it. Think about this for a minute. The last words we hear coming out of Saul's mouth before his conversion in verse five was this, who are you, Lord? Verse five, he says, who are you, Lord? The first words we hear coming out of his mouth after the conversion are, Jesus is the son of God. 
There's no undercover Christianity here with Paul. That's why he goes to the synagogues. He went to the synagogues and the fellow Jews and he preached that he is, he is the son of God. This very man who swore Jesus was not the son of God is the very one in the synagogues of Damascus preaching that Jesus is the son of God. And if you were in the synagogue service, you'd probably be as confused as you could be. What in the world? Who is this guy? Isn't this guy the ones, he, he just came into Damascus to take, to take the, the followers away. Here he's coming in and saying this. They'd be confused, right? Here he is opening scriptures and he begins revealing what the scriptures say about this man. Jesus is the son of God. Now you need a little background information on this because the Jews believed in Christ. You need to know that. They believed in Christ. They expected him to come. In fact, according to the Old, prophet, Old Testament prophet Daniel, not the Old Prophet, the Old Testament prophet, the very day of the Messiah's coming to Jerusalem was given. The problem was they refused to believe that Jesus was the Christ. But Paul's preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Absolutely nothing passive about Saul's preaching whatsoever. His preaching you need to understand, either resulted in revivals or riots. It was, that was Paul's preaching. I'm, I'm going to be honest, I get real sick and tired sometimes of hearing preachers need to fluff up their messages so that we get, get as many people in the seats. I'm not going to play that game. I won't do it. I will not do it. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see it. The message they preach is Jesus is the only way. He's the only way to heaven. And the only way you can get to heaven is through repentance and being born again. That's it. That's what I want people. I, I want to lead people to Jesus so they can experience salvation and can experience heaven. And I, I don't want to fatten them up and send them to hell. I don't want to have them have a 25, 30-year experience with the church that was just so amazing. Everybody was so nice. They get to heaven. They think, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? There's nothing passive about Saul's preaching. He continued to take the scriptures and reveal through the scriptures that Jesus is the Son of God. He immediately gets in the process of sharing the gospel. He begins to get immediately engaged with people to communicate the living Christ. Saul is living his life now for a very different mission. Think about it. This living out your testimony thing. Saul begins preaching as soon as he is saved. As soon as the realization came to him that all this stuff about Jesus was true, it was real, and it was now real for him. It wasn't just enough that it was real for him, though. He needs to make it real for everyone he can. If it's real for me, the chief of sinners, that's what Paul called himself. It's got to be real for others, and others need to hear it. Saul felt an urgency to immediately tell somebody about his testimony. So he came to Damascus on one mission, round them up, send them back, kill them, do whatever I got to do. Now he's living on a different mission proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, share the good news of, of this person or this man, the son of God that he's encountered on the Damascus road. It's now changed his life. He immediately begins to share this with everybody. And here's what I want you to see in this text. Now people know us, right, by the things that we do. So, you know, if you talk to somebody and go, hey, do you know, do you know Justin Hansen? They might say, yeah, is that the pastor? That's the guy that pastors, right? He's a pastor. Or, or, hey, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, he's a dentist. Do you know so-and-so? Yeah, he's a doctor. He's a teacher. People know us by the things we do. 
I mean, we kind of begin to get a, a little bit of our identity in the things that we're associated with. So not just jobs, but if you would walk into my office right now, and by the way, this is a hint to come visit me this week. If you were to walk into my office this week, you would say, wow, uh, Pastor Justin, he's an elk hunter. Yeah, that's right. You would look up on my wall and say, wow, Justin's a warrior. What a, what a manly man. <laughs> No, right? Oh, people might say, oh, yeah, I know Dave, he's a deer hunter, or I know, I know Ian, he's a runner, or I know, I know so-and-so because uh, they're UC Bearcats people, or, or if you've been saved and redeemed, they're Notre Dame people, right? Okay, we begin to get, <laughs> I just lost 75% of my crowd. We begin to get identified with those things, right? We're identified with the things that we're associated with. Not because somebody just goes, oh yeah, so-and-so, I think you're this or, no. But people identify us based on the things that we do or we're associated with, right? So if I ask, hey, do you know uh, Nancy or Daryl or or whatever, and they're like, yeah, I know them. Well, tell me about them. The first thing they're probably going to say is, oh, they're from Kentucky. I think they work in the medical field. Yeah, you know, that's, that's what they're going to, or, or different things that they're involved with. Oh, yeah, they're skiers, or they're, they really like the lake, okay? So we're, we're known by things that we do. The question, just something to chew on here, is if I were to go to somebody and ask them if they knew you, and they say, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so, and I said, good, can you tell me about them? What would they say? Would they tell me, oh, yeah, well, they're a Christian, or, they're, or they're re- they re- really love Jesus or they're really committed or beliefs and they're committed to sharing those beliefs. My question is, are, are, you known, are you known by that? Is that something that would be in that list? I'm not, telling, I'm not saying it's, it's bad to be known as a Notre Dame fan or a UC Bearcat fan or someone who loves to run or somebody who loves to hunt. Those things aren't bad. But does Jesus make that list? Are, do, are you that in love with Jesus and he's that much a priority in your life that the people around your life are going to be able to say that? That person's committed to Jesus. Now, it's a fair question. I did this for myself, by the way, as I worked on this sermon. I asked myself these questions. Um, but Saul had a very defined reputation. And that's, that's what we're seeing here in this text is people were like, hey, this guy was the guy that was going after Christians. That was his reputation. He was known for that reputation. That's why it doesn't make sense. To them, they're like, why are you talking about Jesus now? I thought you were here to get rid of these people who said Jesus was the way. None of what you're saying right now matches your reputation, Saul. His past experience was impacting his current no doubt, but it didn't change the way he communicated the gospel. And I want you to know, by the time Saul, or the Apostle Paul, did die, this was no longer his reputation. His reputation, by the time he died, was that he was a follower of the way, committed to the way. But at this point, his life, the things that he was associated with, he had a reputation. Now, what impacts us is this. Listen, the things that we do make a difference in how people understand who we are. Okay, the things that we do make a difference in how people understand who we are. And if we're going to be a disciple, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, then we should be communicating the gospel. That needs to be something that we do. Okay, are we known by people as someone who shares the gospel? You know, James, the brother of Jesus, he put it this way in James 2.18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith 
and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So we're known by what we do, and if we're disciple makers, are we reaching people? Are we sharing the gospel? You know, and I want to touch, because I can't talk about sharing the gospel and not at least highlight this, but I want to touch on the fact that there's, there's a difference between talking about the gospel and sharing the gospel. Okay, talking about the gospel should never, listen to me, it should absolutely never be a substitute for sharing the gospel. One thing I feel the Holy Spirit really impressing upon me is that we as a church, we as New Heights Church, need to reestablish personal evangelism as a major priority of the Great Commission. Personal evangelism. I've said it so many times. What happens here on Sunday is not the best ministry. The best ministry should be taking place outside these doors Monday through Friday. That's when the real ministry takes place, right? So we've got to reestablish personal evangelism. And I, and I take that on myself as the spiritual leader of this church. I was so convicted when I read an insert from Dr. Paige Patterson who said this at the Southern Baptist Convention. Listen to what he said. He said, talking about the gospel is as far removed from effective witness as talking about race cars is from driving in the Indy 500. I'm thrilled that anyone wants to talk about the gospel, but talk is cheap. Like-minded people can easily sit in pleasant venues and talk about how to define the gospel, but to go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in is a much more difficult situation. A witnessing church is the product of much concerted intercession, the example of a pastor who establishes the standard by his own actions and the focus of a church on those who languish in their sins. That's powerful. I was, I mean, I was so convicted. But I don't know about you, just that stirs up a missionary spirit in me when I read something like that. I mean, think about this. The gospel is the story of a missionary God who sent his missionary son and now indwells us by his missionary spirit. The truth is, talk is cheap, even when the talk is about the gospel. So I'm praying that our church would be full of people who will not settle for conversations about the evangel that don't lead to evangelism. Okay, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is going to work in us and through us, we as a church, corporate, as we recommit to seeking the lost. I am just beating my head over a wall every week asking God, how can we go from being a church where Sunday is like the Super Bowl of what we do to a church that goes out and realizes we're heading out to the mission field every time we walk out those doors? How can I as a pastor lead your flock, God, into that direction? How can we move in that direction where everybody who says New Heights Church is my church takes on that calling? When I go work to work, I am going to make disciples. As I go in my life, I'm going to make disciples. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? Are you sharing the gospel? Because Saul was. Saul shared the gospel. He wasted no time. And this moves me to our, our second point. Again, real deep here. But living out our testimony means making disciples. And what we're going to see, I'm going to read to you verses 23 through 25, but then I'm going to go through the rest of the verse all the way down through 30 because I feel like it just, it, it really, uh, it's, it's proof for this. And then I'm going to share at the very end something from those last verses. So they kind of go for both point, okay? Both points here. So living out our testimony means making disciples. Disciples make disciples by sharing the gospel. And if we're going to be a men or women living out our testimony, we need to be sharing the gospel. But we also need to be making disciples. 
because there's a difference. And in all honesty, if you, you, I mean, just if I'm going to be truthful to you, this is the hard part of the Great Commission. It really is. As a pastor, this is the part where I sit down, and because I'm human, your pastor's human, I'm, I'm just like you, I'll sit down as the pastor of this church, and I'm thinking of these grand schemes. How can we grow and be powerful, and how can we make a difference in the community? And then when you get stuck with the question is, how do you make disciples? You're like, oh, it almost feels like sometimes this you, you, it just puts the brakes on it. Because there's all kinds of things we can do to motivate people, to get people in these chairs. We can do all kinds of great events that make the community know we're here. But how do we actually make disciples? I mean, how do we, how do we see growth in somebody's life? This is the hard part of the Great Commission. And if I'm going to be just totally transparent with you today, I feel like I haven't done a good job in the last three years of doing this. I'm still trying to figure this out. I feel like we've got to do better as a church of making disciples. Making disciples. So people know God because someone's going to share the gospel with them. And then we build them up in their faith and we make them disciples. This is why we talk, we use certain language around here. You know, you might know it, right? We We want people to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Right? So obviously people know God because someone's going to share the gospel with them and then we build them up in their faith and we make them disciples so, so we can help them discover their purpose and make a difference and when, when they've done that then they're going to replicate the cycle all over again and this is why we try to believe in this. It's not just uh, because Chris Hodges came up with it. We believe this is, this is gospel. This is biblical. This is what we need to be doing as a church and, and look at again at verse 23. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Remember, please remember this. Preaching Jesus doesn't always end the way we want it to. Okay, he preached Jesus and and now they're plotting to kill him. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Not a real uh, royal exit from Damascus, but it is what it is. But his disciples, and take notice of this, his disciples, Paul's disciples, this is important, we'll come to it in a minute, took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Oh, I'm jumping ahead. I'm getting too excited. (laughs) Now I'm just going to read all the way through. Actually, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to read all the way through. We're okay. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Again, preaching Jesus does not always end the way you want it to. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, I love Barnabas. Don't you? Come on. Somebody once said, a friend is one who comes in when the rest of the world goes out. So when you feel like everybody else sort of casts you out, nobody cares, it's the friend who's going to come in, stay with you, stick by you, and and be there to nurture you and to keep your feet on solid ground. That's a friend. Let me just say, we need friends. We need community. We need Barnabases in the church. Every church needs people like Barnabas. Someone who's going to come in, put, put their arm around maybe a younger believer, maybe rough around the edges, right? People with a different 
even weird background, kind of people that many Christians just don't want to spend the time of day with because they're so messy. And if they, they get involved in this person's life, then their hands are going to get dirty. Sometimes they just don't want to. But Barnabas was the guy that put his arm around that person and said, I'm going to bring him in. Barnabas was ready to get his hands dirty. People are messy. Church, church is about people, though. You can't just come in and criticize everybody. It doesn't work that way. You've got to come in and be a part of their life, right? Barnabas is, they're going to encourage people. They're going to vouch for people. They're going to stand with them and disciple them in the body of Christ. And, and Saul was with Barnabas in Jerusalem, Okay. Now, verses 28 through 30, it's pretty difficult. It's a difficult passage. It's a difficult truth because living out our testimony means making disciples, but making disciples won't be easy. Talking about this, probably the hardest part of the commission. Here's what I want you to know. Paul was chosen, but he was also opposed. So listen to me. Church, you are chosen, but you will be opposed. The moment a church really starts to make disciples, they are going to experience all kind of opposition. Because again, that's where real life change happens. It's one thing to get a bunch of people to come to the altar and say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Satan's not scared at that point. He's scared when we start to disciple those people. When they become disciple makers, they start going out in their community and they're boldly proclaiming the gospel. They're bringing people alongside of them and they're making disciples. That's when the enemy gets scared. And when a church commits to doing that, he's gonna get, they're going to get opposed. It's just how it is. Maybe that's why the church in America is not being that opposed. Maybe we're not making disciples. It's a difficult passage. You are chosen, but you will be opposed. Now, I think this sometimes comes as the biggest surprise for believers. Aren't they supposed to listen? Aren't they supposed to accept Jesus? And I want you to see something, because there's even more to this passage that gets me. I don't want you to just gloss over this. The fact that for Paul, most of his opposition came from his fellow religious Jews. They were supposed to get it, right? I mean, they were supposed to understand it. He was supposed to help them see the clear reasons why he believed what he believed. I mean, after all, it made, made sense, but it didn't happen. They rejected him. They rejected his message. Now, an important thing for you to consider here. I'm going to be real vulnerable. You know, the worst names I've ever been called... We're not from people outside the church. Worst names I've ever been called came from within the church. They came from other religious people. And I even lived in countries that were absolutely opposed to Christianity. I see this, I see this in verse 26, because even the church didn't have Paul's back. Look at, your, look at verse 26. It says, they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Hardest lesson for me in Christianity was to learn to work for an audience of one. Okay, the hardest lesson in Christianity for me was to learn to work to please an audience of one. I am human. I get hurt when church people hurt me. And then on top of that, as a pastor, I got to deal with people coming in my office all the time who have been hurt by not people outside the church, but people who have been hurt by people in the church. <laughs> if you're going to live out your testimony for Jesus, you're going to need tough skin. 
You know, my mom used to tell me when I, or not my mom, my dad, when I was a little kid and I felt called to be a pastor, he said, well, you got to learn to grow some tough skin. One of your favorite sayings is going to be water off a duck's back. Now, if my dad was still alive today, I would say, dad, that's not the call of a pastor. That's the call of a Christian. Anybody who says yes to Jesus and says, I want to make a difference with my life is going to bring opposition. And it's not just going to come from outside the church. There are going to be people, unfortunately, within the church who are going to criticize you. I see it as a pastor. I wish I didn't see it. But sometimes when I go to sectional meetings and I'm surrounded by other pastors who are supposed to be men of God, leading the church of God, leading God's flock, and all I hear instead of just praising God about the testimonies that so many people came to Jesus, we're seeing life transformation. Instead, all I see sometimes at those meetings are pastors criticizing their fellow brothers and sisters. Oh, that church is only experiencing this because they're doing that and doing this and doing that. And all of a sudden, they're, they're questioning the motives of the pastor, and it breaks my heart. Let me tell you something, New Heights Church. We are going to be a church that celebrates life change. We've got one mission, and that's to see Jesus glorified. That's it. And all of these churches in Cincinnati who call on Jesus Christ as their Savior, those are my brothers and my sisters, and I rejoice when I see them experiencing people coming to Jesus, people experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for my fellow pastors all around this community that God would raise up churches to go out and reach the lost. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. Don't, don't be that one person when you see somebody's small group growing or they, they started this Bible study and it's growing. Don't be that person that says, well, they're only growing because they feed them cheesecake. I mean, if we fed them cheesecake, then we'll get, we'll get all kinds of people too. Come on, church. Come on. Okay, back to the text. <laughs> Paul was back in the synagogues. He was teaching, and then some days later, now people are trying to kill him, right? Well, there's some detail that's not included here in our text, but it's very important. Paul, in the book of Galatians, when he's describing this journey or his experience, he gives us a little bit more detail. He says in Galatians, between verses 22 and 23 in Acts is a period of about three years. So Paul leaves Damascus, he goes out to the Arabian Desert and spends three years in the Arabian Desert. And we, again, we know this because t- Paul tells us this in Galatians 1.17. In fact, I, th- Al, I messed Corey up so bad. Corey, you're awesome and amazing. Thanks for putting up with me. We know this because in Galatians 1.17 it says, I left, went to Arabia, spent time there, and went back to Damascus. So verse 23 is when Paul is coming back to Damascus, and there's this three-year time period in between verse 22 and 23. And here's why I think that's important for us to complicate, or uh, contemplate, not complicate. Because <laughs> what, what Saul was doing in the desert for three years, what was he doing? Now he could have gone out into the desert, found a cave somewhere, spent three years living in a cave all by himself learning about who Jesus is, and then after three years returns to Damascus to continue. But that isn't what Saul did because we're told now that he has disciples. Remember I said that's important to take notice. It said his disciples. His disciples. Luke doesn't really give us a whole lot of details here, so I, I, bear with me, but for a, I'm going I'm to give some information. So Arabia. It's not just some isolated desert location like he went out in the middle of the Sahara somewhere. That's not what, what was happening. In fact, there's a king that rules this entire territory. As a matter of fact, one of the rulers of Damascus was put in place to rule Damascus by this king. So when Saul goes out to Arabia into the desert, he may have spent a lot of time by himself, but, he, but there are people out there. There's a community. He, he's living in a community. And 
he doesn't just go twiddle his thumbs for three years and just learn about who Jesus is and what God's done. He's continuing to take the gospel to this group, okay? He's sharing the gospel, and in doing so, he's making disciples. So when we see him return, why is it that all of a sudden the Jews wanted to kill him? All of a sudden they want to kill him because he's been going for three years, and what has he done? He's been stirring things up. He's been telling people about Jesus. He's continued his mission. He didn't walk out into the desert, leave Damascus, and just go, okay, I'm going to disappear for a few years. No, he goes, and he goes on mission. He's living his life on mission. I've said it so many times. The Great Commission is not just for missionaries who go and make their their life uh, uh, the vocation of being a missionary. The Great Commission is for anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you've done that, you are called. As you are going, make disciples. That's what you need to be doing, and here Paul's doing it. He hasn't been commissioned by the church yet. They don't look at him and recognize him as a missionary. And he's still making disciples. As he is going, he's making disciples. Listen, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Our circumstances or our location, our job may change, but not our mission. Not our mission. Not our calling. And so wherever Paul goes or Saul, he's sharing the gospel and he's making disciples. He isn't just getting people to raise their hand either in prayer. He's not just getting people to come up to the altar and say, I'll do this. He's, he's actually getting people to follow Jesus Christ. So when he returns to Damascus, he doesn't come as just a single guy. He comes with people. Okay? He's coming with people that have, he's made disciples of. And so now the Jews are saying, okay, we've heard what's been going on. We've heard what's been going on over in Arabia. Now this guy's coming back, and we've got to put an end to this guy. So the Jews decide we need to kill him. So that's what they do. They put watches around the wall, guards around the wall. We're going we're gonna to go check the gates. We're going to make sure he doesn't come in because the king of Arabia, whose ru- ruler is ruling over Damascus, has said, we have got to get this guy. He is trouble. Disciple makers, those of us who are living on mission, are communicating the gospel. But what we're also doing is we're making disciples. So if you're going to live out your testimony and evidence, and I said an evidence, not the evidence, and evidence that we're living out our testimony is that we're making disciples. Here's an introspective question for you, rhetorical here, don't answer out loud. Here's a question for you. Do you have at least one person in your life that you know is not a believer, and if they died today, it would go to hell? Do you have people in your life? You could say yes to that. Do you have, do you have that person in your life? Are you having conversations with them? Are you all getting together for coffee? Are you inviting them over to your house, eating breakfast, some mornings, chatting on the phone, you texting each other, meeting at Dunkin' Donuts. A lot can happen there. Do you have that person? Do you have that, that person or people like that in your life and you're actively engaged in sharing the gospel? It's an important question for us to wrestle with. It's an important question for us to ask. What about this question? Do you have people in your life that you're actively building up? Do you have people in your life that you're actively making disciples out of, that you're, you're talking to them about their faith, you're helping move them along, and you can look at them in the eye and say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Do you, do you have somebody like that in your life? Because a man or a woman who's living out their testimony, who's working or, or is helping people know God, if you're living out your testimony, you are helping people know God. You're helping people know God, you're helping people find freedom, you're helping people discover their purpose, and you're helping people make a difference. 
New Heights Church is gonna be a church that not only shares the gospel, but we will be a church that makes disciples. And this, this is where I'm gonna close here. This is the end. Some of you are like, he won't close right now. <laughs> Number three, and this is really what we read in verses 26 through 30, and then I'll touch on 31, but living out your testimony means allowing God to prepare you. I want to come back to the fact that there's a whole lot of time that passes in these verses. So we've already talked about the fact that there was three years that passed between verse 22 and 23. We know that because Paul told us that in Galatians 1. Three years passed before Paul met the first apostle. And remember, during those three years, we just talked about it, Saul was growing in his faith and he was making disciples. He was bringing Jews to Jesus one by one. That's what disciple, making disciples is. And I want you to know there's a truth in that too. Listen to me. It's easier to do ministry when somebody's not just sitting back going, okay, Lord, you know where I live. You know my phone number. You know my address. So if you ever want to use me, I don't know, send me a vision from heaven. Do something like that to get my attention. I'm here. I'll, I'll, I'll do something for you. Just let me know. No, man, it's easier to, to God, it's easier for God to move somebody that's already moving, right? People who are on the move. It's easier to direct a moving object. It's easier to control a moving bicycle. It's easier to direct a moving person, a, a person looking for opportunities. Man, if you're looking for opportunities, I promise you, God is going to put you in a place where you can be used. <laughs> a busy person will find many opportunities to serve the Lord when they're looking for and engaging in and get, getting involved in God's work. He's on the move. So Paul, I want you to know, Paul has not been officially commissioned yet, but that didn't stop him from ministering. Then, after three years, he got his first introduction to the pastor, Peter. <laughs> then he left again for 14 years. How do I know that? Paul explains it in Galatians 2.1. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, Acts is so interesting but if you don't understand the timelines of this book, you miss out on so much because there's a message to be learned in the timing of this book. So what happened during those 14 years? Now, I'm not totally sure, but the rest of the New Testament, it gives us some clues because in Paul's letters, we learn that he had some visions, right, where God clarified his calling and gave him some important insights about Jesus. I gotta be honest, Paul probably needed God to clarify his call because when God calls you, and then you got to wait so long, you probably need God to clarify it. Hey, I'm called, right? Hey, remind me again. Tell me I'm called, right? I mean, you had called me. Ananias put his hands on me. He told me that you had set me apart. That, that was you, right? Because church still isn't commissioning me. They're still not sending me out. God, this was from you, right? And then all the stuff he went through. Because <laughs> we learned from Paul's letters, the guy was persecuted a lot during those years. Most of that happened in that little white space in your Bible between verse 26 and 27, those 14 years. And even after verse 27, Paul really, he just fades out of the spotlight until chapter 13 when he's given his first official assignment. So why in the world, Pastor Justin, are you focusing on that time or that little white space in, in my Bible? Because there's one of the most powerful truths and in this in this space and it's also one of the most neglected truths of the Bible man we as Pentecostals we love to talk about get out there and get busy 
as an official missionary or, or do this or do that. Time's a wasting. We, we don't have time to waste anymore. Let's just get people out. We don't need to train people. We, they don't need to be equipped. We, just, we need to send them. So hear me out. Because like I said, we don't have a lot of details as to what Paul was doing. We do not know that those 17 years between the time God called him in Acts 9 and when he's officially commissioned as a missionary in chapter 13. And remember, like I said, everything in the Bible is there for a reason. So I want you to hear me and hear me carefully. God took a minimum of 17 years to prepare Paul for his first missionary journey, where he was actually a commissioned missionary sent by the church. 17 years. 17 years. And I'm sure Paul thought he was ready, maybe even questioned God at times. Why do I have to wait? Why can't I go now? Now, I want to be clear. Some scholars disagree as to whether the 14 years are between verse 26 and 27 or between verse 27 and 11. But either way, the point is this. God took a long time to prepare Saul. How many times have I heard young people say this? Why can't I go to the mission field now? I don't need Bible college. I don't need to prepare. I had people I studied with at CBC that would say that. I'm going to quit. By, Justin, quit with me. The Lord's going to come back tomorrow. He may come back tomorrow. He may. We got to be ready. God, we're, we're not saying that, but, but what frustrated me the most about this is why couldn't they see that God is sovereign? He's directing everybody's steps. And if God took 17 years to prepare Saul, you can't give 14 years to prepare, prepare for what God has called you to do. We get in a hurry, don't we? God took a long time in preparing him. Crazy to think that he had to wait 17 years before he was officially commissioned from the time that God told him what he would do. And those 17 years were not fun, by the way. 2 Corinthians 11.24, it says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Minus one. Listen to me. Jews didn't want to break the law. So that's why. In fact, Deuteronomy 25.3 reads this. Forty stripes may be given him, but no more. Lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So that's why he would be lashed 39 times, right? Jews didn't want to break the law. So this was, we know this was during the, the uh, or we know that during the last half of Acts, Paul suffered at the hands of the Gentiles, not the Jews. So this would have been a part of his life before he was actually commissioned as a missionary. He's living out mission every day, even though the church has not fully commissioned him and officially recognized him as a missionary. He's still out there making disciples, being opposed, being persecuted. He is living the Christian life. He is living on mission. You have been called to live on mission. Whether you are a student at Central Bible College preparing to go to the mission field, you've got to realize you're on the mission field. Why would you look? Stop looking so far ahead down the road. Don't you know that God has you right here for a purpose, for a reason? Some of you are like, why am I in Cincinnati? I always thought I would do this, or God told me when I was young I'm going to do this. Well, God, he's going to fulfill whatever he told you. But he's got you on his path and his timing. you got to trust God. God has a purpose for you right here in Cincinnati. Every single one of you sitting in these seats who have called on Jesus as your personal Savior. He's got a call for you. I'm telling you, right now, you are in God's will. I get excited. (laughs) Because so many times we don't like God's timing. We want our timing. God's timing is best. God knows what he's doing. And everything in our life is preparation. It's not by accident that you're where you are. 
I've always said this, and I, just so you know, your pastor gets theologically spanked sometimes too. I had a mentor just fly from Seattle, and he, he was meeting with me, and he was asking me about my missions experience, 10 years in Assemblies of God World Missions, and I said, you know, it was a waste of my life. It's a waste. It's 10 years I can't get back. What a waste. Just never got to do what I felt God calling me to do, and it was a waste. And he spanked me. Not physically. <laughs> I don't have that type of mentoring relationship. He said, he said, wow, he goes, that's, that's a terrible way to look at it. He says, because God doesn't make mistakes. He has no accidents. You see, God knew what he was doing. God was building you up. God was preparing you. God was using those experiences that you had in Thailand so that you could be a good pastor here. Don't you see that? No, I didn't see that. Because sometimes, again, I look at it through, through my view, through my lens. He had to take me back to God's text to get me to realize that. It's funny because so many times I, I have, as a pastor, I have people come into my office and say, I'm called to ministry. And it's like right there they want to go into ministry. They don't want to train for it. They don't think they need any preparation for it. It's hard to convince people to even go to Bible college. And I remember when I was commissioned to be a missionary, and I remember going through our interviews, and I remember sitting down. I think it was Greg Mundus, who, who now is the executive director of World Missions, asked me a question that embarrassed me so much. I said, I've been called to missions all my life. And he said, okay, tell me what you have been doing now. What do you mean? Tell me, you said you're called to go to India. Tell me what you have been doing to reach Indians now, in your life right now. Nothing, I'm just getting ready to go to India. No, what if, if it, this is your call, if you're called to missions, what have you been doing right now? You're telling me you're so excited about reaching unreached people. What have you done to reach unreached people in your community right now? I thought I wasn't going to make it. I thought Greg Mundus was going to write, no. Because <laughs> I had to answer the question honestly. Nothing, nothing. He was making a point. If you're called to reach disciples, why are you waiting? Why are you looking so down the road that you miss out what God's trying to do in you right now? What are you doing right now? God's timing, man, I'm telling you. God's not shy about preparation, by the way, in the Bible. In fact, everyone he calls, he prepares. So this, this kind of delayed preparation is pretty common in scripture. I actually would almost say it's standard. Hang with me for a minute. God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. Then he had him 10 sheep for his father-in-law. For 40 years. For 40 years. David was anointed by God to be the king of Israel, but then he was sent back to the pasture to shovel sheep dung. Later, when he got his first big break in the palace, he was falsely accused, and he would spend the next decade running for his life as a fugitive. When I went to Israel, I saw the caves he had to hide out in be pretty ticked off if God told me I'm going to be the next king and then I got to live in a cave like the ones I saw. God told Joseph he was going to use him to save Israel and then send him off to slavery and prison for two decades. Moses, 40 years. David, 15 years. Joseph, 20 years. Paul, 17 years. You're complaining about how God, how long it's taken God to get you where you want to be. I'm talking about me here, not you. Man. I was called when I was 12 years old. I told my son today, we're driving home. I said, Asher, you're 11, you're about to turn 12. When I was 12 years old, God called me to be a pastor. I didn't get voted in to be a lead pastor until I was 37 years old. 37 years old. He took me to India and Thailand first. <laughs> Billy Graham said this, and I love it. 
He said, if I had to do it over again, I would spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but for life. Let me tell you something, church. Don't, don't waste your time. It's where you learn character. It's where you learn patience. Don't waste your time. I know it's hard. I, I know that it can sometimes it means working a job you don't like. It might mean attending a school you don't like. Or it just might be being in a season you don't like. Maybe being in a season of sickness or singleness. And I know it's hard, but, but it's where God teaches you. Everything is preparation. It's like Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi. Wax on. Wax off. Come on. Right? Daniel's son had no idea what Mr. Miyagi was doing. But then all of a sudden, boom, boom. And this, right? Come on. So, verse 31. You had a reason not to believe me when I said I'm closing. But worship team, I am closing now. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and it was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Oops. Look at that. Corey had everything for me. Look at that. He is amazing. Give it up for Corey and our, our tech team. They got to put up with me. The church in Jerusalem had grown to several thousand before it was scattered. It's scattering, didn't stop from growing, and probably actually encouraged growth. And I want to close today by commissioning each of you to go forth and tell your testimony. All week long I've been excited as I've approached this text today. I've just had this sense of incredible passion and excitement because I believe that there are people that Jesus has you to talk to. I do. I do not believe that New Heights Church is going to grow because we come up with some gimmick. I don't, I believe it's going to be because there is a movement that takes place that people capture the heart of God. People understand their purpose is to make disciples. It doesn't matter if you go out as a dentist. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher. It does not matter what you do. Your mission and your calling and your purpose is to make disciples. And I believe that God is going to do something at New Heights Church where he's going to bring us back to that. He's going to make us refocus on that. Not about numbers. In fact, I think if we fill this place up, what we need to do is tell 200 people to leave and start a church. That's what I think we need to do. How about that for church growth? The minute we grow, let's shrink it. I want life change. I want you to, I want you to get it. You got a testimony to share. That's what church is. And I had communion with somebody a week ago at Skyline Chili. Can you believe that? Skyline Chili was my sanctuary. somebody that he wants you to go to today to be a Barnabas to. There are people that need to hear Jesus' work in your life as we're hearing of Jesus' work in Saul's life. God's going to use you to encourage those who are believers, even in community groups this week, and to evangelize unbelievers. And I want you to understand the power of the testimony that God has given you and how much richer and better it is just having, than just having a story or a biography. Amen? 
let's close in prayer. I'm gonna close, you are officially dismissed, but we're gonna open up the altars here. It's a part of our culture and our DNA. We wanna give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to, uh, for us to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing. So if you've gotta go, don't feel bad, you can go. We are officially dismissing, but these altars are open for you to come and pray. Father, we love you, we love what you're doing. I thank you that every one of us who have said yes to Jesus has a testimony. We all come from different places, different backgrounds, but you have a plan and a purpose for our life. God, I pray the Holy Spirit would continue to work in this church, in this body, in this community. You'd continue to inspire us, put a hunger inside of us to live out our mission and to bring you glory all around the world, but also right here in Cincinnati, right here in our neighborhood and our community. And I pray this in Jesus' name.